Welcome to More Creative. I'm your host, Ashley Wiley, and today we talk with Michelangelo Rocco, an illustrator, designer, and art director at Universal Creative Japan. Throughout our conversation, Michelangelo talks about his early career in animation, working for the shows American Dad and The Good Family. We also talk about his transition out of TV to a creative lead role at Walt Disney Imagineering and his move to Japan to work for Universal Creative. We get to hear about his career work spanning theme park attractions, animation, mobile apps, comics, and book illustration. He also walks us through how he helped push the boundaries of technology in theme park design on projects such as the Disney Magic Bands and virtual reality roller coasters. It was great to be able to hear about Michelangelo's story. Hope you all enjoy this one. Michelangelo, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. So I always like to start from the very beginning. So have you always been interested in art and illustration? Yes. Since I could hold a crayon, my parents said that I just wouldn't put it down. <laughs> and I, I drew on every surface in the house, driving them crazy, asking for more paper and everything. It was something that like I, I think I've just always done since as far back as I can remember. Wow. So when you were younger, did you know that you wanted to be an artist and illustrator? Well, I mean, when I was that young, it was just fun. I didn't think I saw it as a profession until I got got like toward like high school or college age. Uh, but I mean, it was always something that was interest of interest to me. It was it came pretty naturally for me. But uh, you know, it's like actually, this is an interesting bit of uh, trivia. I I had I had good grades in high school, and I think there was some pressure to like maybe be a doctor, like a little more like stable career. And, you know, from, from some of my teachers and advisors, and I mean, my art teacher was very much promoting me to pursue arts, but I think everyone else, there was a little bit of a like, well, you know, you could, you can get into a good school, you know, one should be a doctor. And I, I think I also kind of wanted to please my parents a bit. So when I, when I went to college orientation, I actually signed up for biology classes and I'll never forget this. I had a Friday schedule that was all chemistry. It was like, it was like a chemistry class, a chemistry lab, and then a chemistry recitation. And I got back to the, the dorm during, during orientation and my heart just like sank into the pit of my stomach. I was like, what am, what am I doing? Like, I'm not even good at chemistry. I don't know chemistry. So that was kind of, that was kind of what pushed me over the edge. And like the next day I went and, and redeclared a major to be a, a fine artist with a major in, in illustration. And that's kind of started my, my studies in, in college of, of being an artist. And around that time, there was also there was a call that changed my life in a way. So I was, I was home on a semester break. I was playing video games in my parents' house. I think I was playing Nintendo 64 at the time. And like the phone rings and I don't, kind of don't want to be bothered to answer it because I'm immersed in this video game. Mm -hmm. and, it keep, and, it, and it keeps ringing and I kind of yell, phone, you know, somebody get the phone. And I'm playing this game and eventually my mom answers the phone downstairs. And then I hear her like walking across the floor and like I hear her footsteps coming up the stairs and she's like, Mike, Mike, get on the phone. The phone's for you. And I'm like, what? And I'm kind of like annoyed that I'm being disrupted <laughs> from this video game. So I, I put the, the game on pause and I get on the phone and the phone is a recruiter from ILM, Industrial Light and Magic in, in San Rafael, California. So for anyone listening who doesn't know, that was George Lucas's company uh, before he sold it to Disney. He's like, obviously from Star Wars and Indiana Jones and everything. They were setting up an interview for me in their art department. 
And I would have been about 19 years old at the time. And, you know, just in my parents' house, like going, going to classes and I was on semester break. And I think it was either for an internship or like an entry level artist job in the art department. And, but this was the big times and this was industrial light magic. So, you know, I, I did, I had an interview, I got set up for an interview and I, and I went through the interview process. Now I didn't get the job, but I look back at that call and I think that that was kind of a validation of my dream. Like, like this could happen. I got really close and I'm still a teenager. And I look back at that because it took me a few years after college to get my foot in the door as a, as a professional artist. So I look back at that call and I think that that was sort of what triggered it in my mind to think like this, this could be real. It was probably that phone call. Whoa. So you were 19. Had you sent your work to them? Yeah. So I, before everything was on social media and super connected, this was, this was like early 2000s, late 90s. I, I just knew of like a handful of, of companies, like the big ones, like I knew of Disney, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, Industrial Light Magic. And I had sent my work and resume and some of those companies I think actually had like an internship program that you could apply to formally. I think I just sent out like four or five of them. And it was really like my parents also, I mean, I was driven, but you know, your parents, I had good parent, encouraging parents. They were kind of pushing me like, you need to apply. You get to get on this quickly. And I was kind of grudging like, okay, I'll just send it. I still have like a couple of years of college left, but I just out of the blue. Yeah. I got this phone call one, I think it was over the summer, but I know it was during a semester break. Uh, and it was, I, I would say in, in the, the short history of my life, it was sort of a life-changing phone call. Wow. I don't doubt that at all, especially being still in school and knowing that you had the prospect of working for one of these companies before you even graduated. I'm sure that was very validating. So tell me about your education after you'd switched your major. So that's, that's also interesting too. So I, I was studying illustration at a time when there was a big shift in the industry where everything was kind of going digital. And a lot of the curriculum in illustration at the time, in my case, was very hand-drawn. Uh, it was very traditional. It was, it was pencils, paint, gouache, sculpture. Uh, we, we, had, we had like motion imaging and, and a, like a design degree, but at the time you couldn't cross majors in the department. And that was a big bummer for me because I was really into technology and animation and computers and I wanted to use all the latest, greatest software, but that was kind of reserved for the people who were like computer art majors, not illustrators. They were very different at that point. And I remember there were also a lot of purists, which kind of seems silly to me now, but I guess they'll always be purists where like we'd be in a figure drawing class and they would say like, well, I don't need a computer to do cool things. I say, yeah, but have you seen Photoshop? They have this feature and they say, I don't need computers. So so the curriculum was really traditional back then, but I was, I was getting an education right at the cusp when getting out of school, I think a lot of students and new hires had to know a lot of technology. They needed to know like a lot of computer programs. So I, I'm very grateful for that education, but I had to do a little self-directed development education on my own to learn software that, that I didn't really get a chance to learn in college. Interesting. So upon graduating, what were you wanting to go into? Were you wanting to go into art and illustration with more of a software focus or were you looking for other opportunities? So back in those days and actually many years after, I really wanted to go to Los Angeles to be an animation artist. I wanted to work in TV or film. And everything that I was researching at the time was like, like it was also at the time when like 
Disney had laid off like a bunch of people because they had moved digitally and like CG animation was just taking off and Pixar was becoming a powerhouse. So there was this feeling that like to get into animation, like you may need to know 3D. Like there, there was this feeling when for me and some of the people and, and, and you know that I had talked to and things like, well, well, maybe just drawing is not going to be enough to get into animation anymore because look at all these CG films. Like you kind of have to know CG, which was not my education. It was an illustration background. So I still wanted to get into animation, but I was starting to, to, to struggle a bit and wonder like, well, how am I going to get my foot in the door? Do I, do I have to go back to school? So when I first moved to LA, actually, I was trying to get my foot in the door. And, and based on this idea that maybe I needed to get more CG animation, I actually went to UCLA and took some additional uh, classes in Maya and CG animation. And at the time, I tried to get as much education as I could, but it was difficult because those were my struggling artist days and I was new in a new city and it was kind of hard to work like a, a nine to five job and then also try to like learn CG. And you, I had to go to the computer lab to learn it because there was no way I could afford that software like back when I was 22 and everything. And, and uh, I was trying to learn on my own. And I remember thinking at the time, which is another ironic twist was that Maybe it was just all that. It was just the struggling artist days and having to work a day job and, and also do that like afterward. But I remember not quite embracing the CG aspect. It was a little much, too much of a science for me at the time. And I thought, well, I could draw this faster, but learning the software is, is very different. And it's interesting to see how things have merged like over the years, because now all the drawing is done on the computer now. So it's not like you have to learn CG. You can still draw on the Wacom Cintiq or even on an iPad and you can use drawing software. So you're still drawing, but it's all done in a digital pipeline. So that was like a real great milestone for me in my career when the technology finally came caught up with drawing and you could draw, but you could draw it digitally. That was like a huge leap forward for me. And I think that was kind of my sweet spot where I said, okay, like this is, this is what I love doing. When you first graduated, you worked as a multimedia designer, but then you transitioned from that to a storyboard artist for shows like American Dad and The Good Family. What was that transition like, and how did you get into that position with television? Right. So I had been looking to get into animation for years after graduation. It took me a few years. I worked, I worked some desk jobs. I also did some freelance work. And I was finding that the freelance work I could do was like storyboards for like commercial agencies, or I could do like websites, some of the, the digital technology that I kind of self-taught myself after my college degree, which was much more illustration based. So what ended up happening was uh, I, I reached out and just networked like crazy. And in those days, like social media wasn't like it was like it is today. It was like really hard to network. Like networking was like making cold calls and sending emails to people. And I just really had to put myself out there. It's like, I feel like an old man saying, you know, these kids these days are so spoiled with their social media. But like back back in like mid 2000s, like, you know, you, you as you'll recall, like you, we had email with the internet, but it wasn't as like prevalent as it is now. So I had to network with tons of people. And basically I, I had met like through like many degrees of separation somebody that was working at Fox at the time. And he kind of acted as a mentor for me. He kind of helped me like in my portfolio and gear. And, and, he's, and he was telling me that like an entry-level job in a lot of these TV shows is storyboard revisionist. 
So he said, you'll have to take a test, but that's kind of the job you should, you should shoot for. And I had done some research on the industry before I moved out to LA and everything, but actually hearing from a working professional to say, well, yeah, but like a character animator, that's like a really high ranking job at like feature animation studio. Like you're not going to get that right away. A good entry point would be like storyboard revisionist. You know, so uh, I ended up doing a bunch of tests. And one of the tests I did was for American Dad. It was a storyboard revisionist test for American Dad. But the interesting thing was I handed it in and I, and I got a rejection, just like I got a rejection from ILM and all these other places. And they said, you know, they gave me a polite rejection letter and said, you know, we'll keep your, your resume and portfolio on file. And, you know, we'll let you know if there's any openings in the future. So meanwhile, my multimedia design career was taking off. I was working in a really high tech industry. I had a mentor there who was really pushing education. And you know, he'd say, if you don't know software, we'll just buy it, expense it and learn it. You need to take a class, go to the class and expense it. Like he, I, I'm really thankful for that opportunity to get on the job training with such a like progressive manager. Like at the time, I remember he wanted me to learn flash animation because it was, it was like all over the web back in those days and everything was flash. And I said, well, I, I like animation, but I kind of do a little different thing. And I, I don't know the action script or anything. And he says, well, just learn it. It was intimidating, but with the, the right support, you can accomplish really whatever you set out to do. And I had a lot of support at that company. So I started learning all the software and, and just as things were going really well, in fact, I moved into a nice apartment, like, like kind of, kind of North of Los Angeles. So I could be closer to work like six weeks into still unpacking in my new apartment. I get this surprise phone call from Fox. I was like, I don't believe it. Like I kind of gave up on this a little bit because things are going well. And so I figured, well, I'll, I'll go in, I'll shake a bunch of hands. I mean, I may not get the job anyway. So I go in there, shake a bunch of hands and uh, I meet with some of the artists and the producers there. And I was really shocked. They gave me the job on the spot. They made me the offer. And I was, I didn't, I almost like was speechless. Like I, I didn't know what to say. Cause I, I had been doing, I've been at that so long trying to get an animation for like maybe five years or so after graduation. And I had kind of given up on it because I was already happy being a multimedia designer, but I really wanted that job too. And it's just so weird how things happen in life and the time you can't predict the timing of things. And I just thought like, it's now or never. Like if I don't take this job, which is what I came out here to Los Angeles to do, I may never get this opportunity again. So it was a, it was a tough decision, but I took the leap. And then I, I left that job to start um, on Fox as, a, as an artist for American Dad. And one of the big transitions to, to um, answer your question, what was that like? It was weird because I, I walk... I walk into the studio the first day and I'm just a starry eyed, like 20 something, like I'm just over the moon, you know, and they, they show me to my desk and the desk was just a drawing desk. It was just pencil, just paper, uh, erasers and all this analog supplies. There's no computer. At that point, the production pipeline was totally traditional and it, it didn't really hit me until I sat down and I'm like, wow, this is just, this is drawing like hardcore draftsmanship. And it was it was so weird because I always had this tug of war with technology and art. So like when I was in college, I was just learning mostly drawing, but some design, but then I had to kind of self-learn the technology. Then I go to this multimedia design job where I'm learning tons of the latest hardware and software of the day. Now I get a first job in animation and all these years I was telling myself, well, I probably need to know CG. I probably need to all the, know all these software programs, but now the job is just drawing, like just, 14 hours a day at the drawing desk. So that was an interesting change. And I think as, as much as I loved it, I was really like 
like cloud nine uh, being able to work on a primetime TV show in my 20s. But I think I did crave that technology. And I was really craving to be able to do this like on a computer, but that just wasn't the way that production was run. It was like people lining up at the photocopier and like shrinking their drawings. And if you had to like recrop a scene, like a director may give, give an assignment and you have to recrop like 30 panels, which meant that you had to go with like a ruler and a pencil, like old school and like redraw it. And I remember thinking even back then, there's a better way. And it wasn't until the next show that the industry really had a, like a paradigm shift. And then everybody was using Wacom Cintiqs and Storyboard Pro software. And then everything went digital and everything was way, way more efficient. And, and again, that was when I really like, I think for me, it really clicked. I was like, okay, I, I get this now. It's a, lot, it's a lot more efficient to do it on the computer because now the drawing has merged with the computers. Before, for so long, drawing was, was done separately. You'd have to scan the drawings in. And then like the in-between moment was like the Wacom tablet where you would draw, it's like a mouse, but you're still not drawing on the screen. You're drawing on a mouse pad and then it gets shown on the screen, which was still a little off-putting. So yeah, it was, it was a big transition. And I, I can't like verify this, but when I look back in, uh, in hindsight, several people have told me this, that that last season before I left the show was the last season that that show was still drawn in an analog form. And then there was a writer strike, which is when a lot of us left and I, I went over to the Good Family. And then after the writer strike, I, I think the show then went totally digital. And then someone made a claim that the Good Family was the first all digital show. I think that's the case. And if it is, it's kind of interesting because I was sort of there at a time of history, a big paradigm shift in the industry where it went from drawing on pencil to drawing totally in a digital pipeline. Something that I've always been curious about is when you have multiple artists working on the same characters but drawing by hand, how do you keep everything looking so similar between the scenes? It's super difficult. It's super challenging. So part of why artists usually take a test before they join a show is to see if the artists can draw in that style. Because every show has got a different style and every artist has a different style. Like one very um, common example is like Pablo Picasso was a phenomenal artist, but would he be a good animator at Disney? Like probably not, that's not his style. The way, the way it works though is there's a character designer or a design department that comes up with character turnarounds called model sheets. And these are like the proper proportions you're supposed to draw the characters, props and environments. It's called a model sheet. So if something is drawn on model, that means it's drawn to the correct proportions. If something is drawn off model, it means it's not drawn correctly, the proportions are off. So imagine Mickey Mouse with giant circular ears, like that's off model, his, his ears aren't that big. But if you draw his ears and all his proportions correctly, then Mickey is on model. You take a test and if you can draw close enough in the style and the, the look and feel of the show, then you study the model sheets and you have to try to draw them in the proper perspective and the proper um, proportions. That's difficult. That, that's usually what makes or breaks an artist on the show. Like if you can't draw in on model, it's, it's sort of hard to be able to draw at least in 2D animation. Now, if you're drawing for like, like CG, 
sometimes the storyboards are done, you know, quickly uh, in drawing, but then the characters are CG. Then the, the drawings don't necessarily have to be on model because the CG models, they're already perfectly modeled. But that's, that's a challenge. It's, it's an ongoing challenge. And actually, when you, when you work on a show or if you're just a super fan, if you watch it over and over, you'll actually see a lot of times when, when characters do go off model. It's, it's actually not super seamless, but to the untrained eye, it may look like it's all, all perfect. But if you work on the show and you watch it enough, you'll see all oh, that, that, that pose kind of went off model a little bit. That arm was a little too long, but it kind of takes like a trained eye to pick it out. And if you can't notice it, then the artists are doing their jobs. Wow. It just shows how much talent it takes to put together something like that. I mean, I just had no idea what the actual background of it was. That's amazing. Yeah, it's intense. So what is the process of bringing a show to life? I mean, was it an episode every week? How fast was it as well? So I've worked in TV, but I also work in animation for theme parks. So media-based uh, theme park attractions. They all, they all get a, approached a little bit differently. Usually you get a script. So the shows that are like primetime TV shows, like say like The Simpsons or American Dad or something, they're scripted shows. You get a full script. The, the alternative is a show that is more of like a premise-based show where it's more like gag-driven, more like maybe like Looney Tunes or something where like every little gag is not written out in the script. It's kind of up to the artist to kind of come up with good gags and compositions and everything. So if it's a scripted show, then what you usually do is the, the artist will get the, the script and a portion of the script will get, get assigned to the artist. And then you have meetings with the writers and the writers and the artists kind of discuss the script. They may say, when I wrote this, I was thinking it would kind of look like this or maybe something like this. They may show you an image. They may even do a rough sketch or the artist will like, while somebody's miming, this is kind of the, the acting I was thinking the artist might do a little thumbnail sketch in the margins. So I want to capture that. So then you usually do a thumbnail stage where it's just really rough really rough story beats. You're not really concerned about the composition. Nothing's on model yet. They're, they're just done really, really rough. And then you review that you get a whole bunch of feedback and notes and sometimes it hurts. And I've been both the artist getting notes and I've also many times had to give notes to artists that I'm directing. So I, I'm sympathetic to uh, how people can get sensitive over their work and stuff, but it's, it comes with the territory. So, and then it's just, it's just many revisions after that. It's just, it's thumbnails, then it's, it's a, it's a first pass then a revised pass and then another pass. And then when the storyboards get to a, a good state, they get put into an animatic, which is like a rough storyboard timed to music and, and a scratch track. So you can actually see it on screen, but they're all the drawings. And then that usually gets sent with uh, the storyboards and everything to an animation house, which is it varies, but sometimes, and usually it's done separately. The animators themselves usually are not storyboard artists. It's usually a different uh, position, but, but it varies. The way we did it in the theme parks was similar. We would, uh, we would brainstorm with the story team, and then uh, we'd have uh, a writer write the script. We'd give notes on the script. When the script was good, we hand it off to a storyboard artist, and then they, they would work on that for several weeks, usually thumbnails first, then revised storyboards, then animatic. And then for most of the work I did, uh, in, in theme parks, we usually worked on licensed IP. So they already had, a lot of the IP holders had their preferred animation studios. So then we would just hand that off to the studio and they would do their thing. They were always great, great, like top-notch animation houses. That is a long process, I'm sure, but really, really cool. After you did your work on American Dad, there was a writer's strike. You moved to The Good Family. But after you worked in those two shows, 
what did you want to do next? Did you want to stay in television or were you ready for a transition to something new? So great question. So here, here's the story that I've, I've, I've told to some people. I did not want to leave TV. I was still very happy doing animation. And it was a time during the recession where uh, work was a little bumpy. I had a lot of like starts and stops where I would start a, a project and people say, oh, this is going to be huge. And then, then I find out like the project had been greenlit. So it was a few weeks of work. And then one of the producers on, on Good Family calls me up and offers me a job on the Beavis and Butthead reboot. And I am just thrilled. I'm a huge fan of Beavis and Butthead. <laughs> I know they have their, their share of detractors. And actually, uh, just a little side note, I did a, some fan art for Beavis and Butthead on um, on Instagram, and it just went viral. And I just like, man, I love these characters, you know. So I got the job offer, and it was all set up to go. And like the Friday before I was going to start, I'd already told the union that I'm starting a new job. I told my friends and family. I just couldn't contain my excitement. I was all set up to start on Monday, and I get this emergency phone call on like Friday afternoon from the studio that they have to retract the offer because of some budget problems. And I was just devastated. I was like, oh my, I, I, I just, I mean, I just, it's a roller coaster, no pun intended of just getting that like dangled in front of you. And then you actually get the job and it actually gets retracted. So I, this was like toward the end of the year, the holiday season was approaching and I was just like, oh, what am I going to do? So at the time I, I was working with an agency as well. And my agent contacts me and she says, I know you want to get back into animation. She said, but there's an opening that I think you'd be really good for. It's a creative lead position and it's at Disney. And I said, okay. And I was kind of like, you know, I still kind of want to get into animation, but she says, you know, it's, um, it's at Disney and I've already shared your, your resume and they're really, really excited to talk to you. And she says like, would you, would you just consider it? And I said, and I said, sure. And I also got bombarded from like three or four other recruiters that I hadn't met. And I was thinking, wow, this is sort of a sign. Like maybe I am a good fit for this role. So I ended up going through this marathon review process at Disney. It was like a phone interview, a design test. And then I went in in an in-person interview and it's like in a conference room. And I sort of just got grilled by all the managers. Like, uh, you know, all great questions, but you know, it was, a, I could tell this was an important job because you had important people interviewing you and they were asking some really like deep questions, everything from like about my process to like, what books do I read? What, what websites do I go to? And I, I must have answered things correctly. And uh, I get offered this job and it was a creative lead position. Disney goes through so many reorgs. I don't even know what the, the, the department is now, but the time at the time there was a digital division that did like parks and resorts online. And it sounded interesting, but it still was like, I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing. Is it, is it a web design job? And, and the first project that I was assigned, it dealt a lot with animation, character design, level building. It was like an online kind of game that uh, connected to a theme park attraction in Orlando. So I got that job and it turned out to be a really good fit. Like it was a creative, diverse environment. Every day it was something different. It wasn't just one thing every day. It was different projects, different people, different creative challenges. It was a big diverse campus where every part of the Disney campus looked differently. And I was supposed to be there as like a contractor for like something like two years or so. And really quickly, my, my manager said, I think I can get gets you a permanent role here if you're up for the challenge. And I said, oh, well, hell yeah, y yes. So 
I ended up getting an employee job there. And then our whole department worked so closely with Imagineering that we, our whole department merged with Imagineering. And then we became Imagineers and kind of went all in with the theme park uh, design. But the majority of what I did was media-based animation and digital like apps that connected to the merging of like art and technology, which over and over, I look back at the jobs that were like the most fulfilling. A lot of them were, were the intersection of like art and technology. It's like what really drives me. And, and that this job was totally that. It was, it was connecting guests to, from digital worlds and technology to the physical space and the theme parks and resorts. And uh, yeah, I just really love that job. So I wasn't really planning on leaving animation, but I moved over into Imagineering and that's kind of how I segued into theme park design. One of the assignments that you assisted with development on was the Magic Bands, is that correct? Right. So could you talk a little bit about what it was like bringing such a new, unused technology into the world of theme parks and entertainment? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and again, I'm, I'm noticing a theme how technology is, it's always rejected, but it's always important. And it seems to really change. It's a huge paradigm shift and like every industry gets affected by technology. I mean, we're seeing that today with like the journalism industry. Prior to that, it was like the movie industry. It's funny to think about this now, but at the time there was, there was this perception with the public that people were really going to be resentful of technology. Like the idea was that you would share information on an online account and then a company would kind of use that to inspire your your experience in these magical ways there was this this pushback i don't know exactly where it's coming just maybe society in general we were at a different place 10 years ago or so where people like kind of didn't want that they like well if i'm going to go to my theme parks you know theme park experience like i'm just going to do it on my own my own watch and do what i want when i want i don't want to have to share or i'm not going to put pictures of my kids online or something like that but like when you go on facebook all you see now is people's kids society has changed so the idea basically and this was years ago so it's maybe maybe changed but there's these magic bands and they were to streamline your park experience so you could you could tap the band and you could get into your hotel room without without using a key or you could purchase something without using a key it was like a, it was like a not a fast pass in the, the Disney speak term, but it was, it, was, it was faster. It was much streamlined. So I got assigned portions of how to make that creative. So beyond just like wearing your, your magic band in a pool and not having to wear a wallet or something, well, how can we make that creative? So there were all these experiences that we brainstormed and we dreamed up on how you, someone could have a magic band and they'd walk around the park experience and everything would magically transform for them. It was just like a way where like, if you, if you like Captain Jack Sparrow, cast members would know your name, if you were celebrating a birthday and where, and everything would be pirate themed. I, I worked on an experience where you could create like your own Muppet online or like parents could create Muppets of their kids. And then when you went to the Muppet Vision 3D attraction, you would see those Muppets show up on digital displays and mirrors and it would be a surprise and delight moment. So all of this stuff made it to the parks eventually, but they, they made it in uh, different stages. So it wasn't like one big push, like we're going to launch it. It was more like a, a slow rollout. And I was really excited to see that everything, pretty much everything made it to the park eventually. And it was truly like surprise and delight moments because it, it was unexpected. You would just do something online, personalize something, and then your park experience would be, would be personalized. And I saw an article a while back, there's a, a cruise ship. I don't remember the, the company, but there's a cruise ship now that has medallions with similar technology. 
And I, when I saw that, I said, see, it's taking off now. I think when I was working on it, it was sort of cutting edge and a little before its time. And there was maybe a little, it was a little controversial and like maybe everyone doesn't want to like do things online or look at their phone. And, but now it's like other companies are, are doing the same type of thing of personalizing something, whether it's a magic band or a medallion or something, and then it personalizes your, your cruise experience. I have not experienced that, but I read an article about it. It was really good to see that the technology is finally being like embraced. That is so incredible that you were on the cutting edge of, of that technology at the time. So I'm always curious, when you have to approach blue sky design, when you have to look at something that has never been done before, what is your mindset going into something like that? I feel like it can be very daunting for some people, but for others, they can really thrive in that environment. What is it like for you? So if you're in the right environment with a lot of creative, supportive, respectful people, it shouldn't be intimidating. A blue sky brainstorm session should be the sky's the limit. That's where the name, the, the term comes from. And no, no idea is wrong. And instead of saying no, you say yes and. And you just you just keep brainstorming, you just keep riffing on it. And you know, I if you're in the room with some really creative minds, whether they're imagineers or whoever is like at the top of their industries, like the ideas just start turning. They, they really do. I mean, so I've had the good fortune of being in a room with some brilliant minds and that can be intimidating mm -hmm. because you're around such talented people. But when you're working on like TV shows, you know, international theme park attractions, Disney Imagineering projects, there's no shortage of ideas. Like everybody just brainstorms, you see what sticks. And what you find is after a couple of sessions, certain ideas just kind of rise to the top. They just kind of organically rise to the top. And then you, you kind of do a deep dive on each one until you settle on something. And even when you settle, you have to course correct along the way. So if you're on a project that's years long, there are a lot of changes along the way. And I think in time, you get experienced enough to know that this just comes with the territory. It's not a bad thing if you suddenly get feedback from coworkers or you do focus group testing and you say, well, that didn't really work out. Okay, so just start again, like back to the drawing board. It's not a terrible thing. And I think I used to be a lot more put off by it when I was younger in my career of thinking like, oh, we, we failed. Well, it's, it's, no, you didn't fail. You, that's the whole point of testing it. That's the whole point of a soft launch. That's the whole point of a ride test is you see what works and then you course correct if it, if it doesn't work. So you brainstorm, you brainstorm with wild ideas, you refine what it is you want to work in, and then you just keep testing and adjusting until launch. Wow, that's a really great perspective to have in something like that. You eventually transitioned to a senior digital designer for Disney consumer products and merchandise. How did your role change when you switched positions? That also organ organically changed over time. Without realizing it, I moved from a much more leadership role as a creative lead into more of a supporting role, just the way that that team was organized at that time. So on the one hand, it got me much more in touch with hands-on work, whereas a creative lead, I, I had to delegate more work. And in fact, I remember early on, like that was my first big like leadership role. I had to learn to delegate and learn to relinquish some creative control. And in fact, I kind of got scolded by my mentors at the time saying, well, you can't just come in and work on a computer with your headphones on, your team needs you to make a decision. Like, oh. but when I moved over to the other department, I kind of went with that mindset because we were, we were still working with a lot of out, outside vendors and things like that. And it still required a lot more hands-on work. 
So that was another shift mentally of my approach to the work, but it also made me a stronger designer and a stronger illustrator because I had to do it again, like 10, 12 hours a day. And, and we, we worked on dozens of apps. And interestingly enough, the very first project I started on, they wanted me to hit the ground running on a Frozen app. The movie Frozen had just come out, okay? And we had we had structured it so that we were gonna be more like managers and we had a development team that was gonna develop it, but it turned out we actually did, did all the hands-on design. When I say we, I mean our core little team of employees. We weren't like outsourcing. So it was intense work to get it done in a record amount of time. And, you know, I, I, I knew that it, Frozen was a big deal. I, I, I knew the song Let It Go, but it was a Disney karaoke Frozen. So it was like, it was a karaoke app. And it was the number one app in 24 countries. Like, I, and it's like, you just, you never know what is going to hit. Like, obviously that's a famous movie, but it's like, would a karaoke app be famous? And would it, would the timing be right? Would we be able to pull it off? It's like the number one app in 24 countries. In my time at, in that department, I still think that was the most successful app that I worked on at the time. It was the first one and we did it like record time. It was, it was wild. But what I remember most about my time there was actually a lot of the great extracurricular activities I was involved in outside of the day-to-day. So there were a lot of volunteering activities that we were part of. And I remember I, I wasn't a father yet, and we got the opportunity to volunteer at underprivileged schools. And there was a school of like underprivileged kids that came from some broken homes, and we were going to like play with them at recess. And I was terrified. I, I didn't have a daughter yet, and I, I worked with kids, like for kids entertainment, but I was not like a babysitter or anything. So I was like so nervous. And all my um, coworkers and I, we'd get in a bus and we go to this other side of town in Los Angeles and we, we go to the school. And these schools treated us, or these kids, they treated us like we were celebrities. They were so happy to see us. They had all these toys they were giving us, these drawings they were giving us, that the drawings of like Mickey Mouse and Disney. Kids were hugging us. They said, we were waiting for you. And I just was overwhelmed. Just to think like something that we kind of take for granted every day, then you have these kids from underprivileged homes that just see, it's just you mean the world to them. We were, we were playing hide and seek and one kid just kept hugging me. And I kept telling him, you have to go, you have to go hide. You can't, you can't just stand here. And then we would like cover our eyes to count to 10. And then I like op- open my eyes, the kid hugs me again. And, and someone took a picture of it and I still have it. It was like a really like moving moment. It's like just how, how much you can mean to kids when you kind of step out of your role for a moment and see how it affects other people. Like these were all Disney fans. And then while I was also working in that department, I, we worked closely with publishers, uh, the, pu- the publishing division that did like core publishing of books. And we used to get a lot of their artwork and then put it in our apps to do like storybook apps and, and games. So I had a rapport with that department. And at one point they were looking for an artist for, for a little golden book. So you probably familiar with those little golden books, yeah. the golden spines. And, yeah. And and the art director reached out to me and he said, we're, we're auditioning some artists. We're evaluating some artists. So we need a new artist. Are you interested? And I was super intimidated. And I was surprised that he even asked me because Disney illustrators, especially that department, they're like really, really talented illustrators. Like, you know, these are storybooks that you see, like, you know, on the bookshelves. These are, and, and I was, I was intimidated, but I didn't want to turn it down. I said, okay. Uh, so he says, yeah, send me, send me some of your work. And, you know, we're, we're, we're vetting a few artists. So 
I, I did a deep dive. I studied all my heroes like Mary Blair and Yuasugi, he's a Japanese artist, has a beautiful style. Uh, some modern artists like Joey Chu, I don't know if you know some of these people. And, and I said, yeah, that's the kind of vibe I want, this kind of mid-century modern illustration. And I put together some drawings and I sent my portfolio in. I didn't think I was gonna get it. And lo and behold, they, they offered me the, the, the job of illustrating a little golden book. And, and th this was, it was really intimidating because I wanted to do it justice. It was the little golden book for Pixar's uh, The Good Dinosaur. So, you know, when you think of the, the quality standard from Pixar, Random House, Disney, it's really intimidating. I suppose it gets easier, but there's always that imposter syndrome. Like, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I can do this, but I don't, I, I don't want to give up. Plus I had the day job of designing like four or five apps at once. And that was another thing where I could do really hands-on work again and not be a creative lead and just delegate it. Like I was going to do, like I was the illustrator, but I also had the responsibility not to fail at it. And what was interesting too, back to our earlier point in the conversation about keeping characters on model. Mm -hmm. So that that's really challenging to keep characters on model, but this was done in an interpretive style. So when I sent my like audition drawings to be evaluated, it was my own personal style. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and I wasn't sure if they were going to go for it. Like, they may say, well, our characters don't really look like that. And and I made them really playful and, and cute and, and kind of had that mid-century illustration vibe. And they, they approved it, though. All the, the stakeholders, they approved it. And I kept thinking at some point, as I was working these nights and weekends to get this done, that I just had this nagging feeling that somebody was going to step in, either off the film in Pixar or something, and say, no, we can't use that style. And I was like so nervous about that, but they didn't. And I got the book done and it got published and it was a really positive experience. I got to go to Pixar and uh, do book signing with other artists on the film. But it was also humbling to be like at Pixar and have all these people line up for a book that you just drew like in your apartment, basically. Like that's usually what I take away from when I think of my time in, in consumer products was all the really other interesting things I got to do in addition to the day job that really was testament of how enriching the environment was at Disney, that you could get hired for a job and do that job. And if you do that job well, all these other opportunities can open up as well that really don't have that much to do with the day job. It's something else, but it's still creative. What an incredible experience to be able to use your own style on something so well known. That's an amazing opportunity for sure. Yeah, I was very flattered. I was, I was very humbled. After you worked in that consumer products and merchandise position, you eventually moved to your current position as art director and creative lead at Universal Japan. How did that opportunity come about for you? That's another amazing story. So my former manager and mentor at Imagineering took a very senior job at Universal Japan. And he wanted to bring me with him as he was building the team. And at the time I said, well, I got all this going on at Disney. I was also like six months into planning my wedding. Oh no. So I don't know if you ever had to do that, but like, I mean, I don't wish wedding planning on anybody who's not prepared for it. Like it's a lot of work. And, and I was illustrating a book and you know, there was so much going on. And I said, wow, I, I mean, I would love to go to Japan and work at Universal. I said, but I don't, I just, I don't know like if this is the right time and everything. So I had that in the back of my mind that that's where I wanted to go eventually. But I thought I was also up for a promotion at Disney and, and I was going to get married. There's so much going on. And then, you know, it was all about timing. So 
several months passed. I got married to the love of my life. It was a real positive experience. So I come back from my wedding and there's a big organizational shift at Disney and there's just, everybody's kind of scattering and doing different things. And it just seemed like the right moment. And I was trying to decide where I wanted to go next. And I kind of networked hard at Disney at that point to, to use all my connections, see where I could go in the company. But I, I just kept coming back to Japan in my mind saying, I would rather do that. So I took on, um, it was like a freelance project first, so I could kind of get to know the team there. And I knew some of them because they were former Disney alumni that I had known from Imagineering. And then my, my manager at the time said, uh, yeah, we'd love, to, love for you to come out here. We think you do really well here. And I mean, I always wanted to go to Japan ever since I first played Super Mario and learned where Japan was. And to be welcomed in that country not just as like a tourist, but like with such a phenomenal opportunity, it was just like beyond words. Like it was just so humbling. So I made the decision to go and you kind of have to just make those decisions in life. Timing's important, but you also have to make it happen. So I, I just said, yeah, and, and I got a plane ticket and I went out there and I remember I was finishing up a project or something and, and, and it was like almost the end of the fiscal year at that company. And they're like, well, we're only going to be able to have you have like a short-term contract. So I said to my wife, like, look, I'm going to go there and it may only last three weeks, but I go for there for three weeks and I come back. And then if it works out, then you can come there with me. So it ended up lasting almost four years and counting. It has been a phenomenal experience working cross culture, working on different IPs and seeing how this company does things in this country differently than I had done in the past and traveling, you know, to Tokyo, Osaka. And then my wife came out to visit me several times and being able to show her around and show her what I do for a living and, and it being like accessible, like you could walk through the theme park and say, you know, I worked on that. It's like the projects were turned over very quickly. You worked at a really rapid rate. And in doing that, you're on the fast track to learning and you make mistakes quickly and you recover quickly. It's not like a seven year long project. It's like a seven month project. So I got to do a lot of creative work and I got to share it with the world really quickly because you'd work on something for like six months and then it launches and thousands of people get to experience it. So that, that was just an, an amazing experience. I'm just, I'm really grateful for this. So I'm curious, what sort of unique challenges are presented when you work in a different country like Japan? It's amazing when you can go literally to the other side of the world and you realize we're all human. You, you may not be able to read the signage and the language is difficult, but then, you, you know, you walk into a meeting and someone has pride or jealousy or a great idea. And it's like, yeah, this is, this is the same. We're all, we're all human, right? But there are some differences that I experienced. I don't know if it's across the board, but like, um, well, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share one experience. This was a personal experience, so I, I don't know if it's like across the board. But so I was working as the art director on, on the Final, Final Fantasy uh, virtual reality coaster. And so Final Fantasy, the video game series and everything. And there's, a, there's kind of a vibe that I pick out that when you hire somebody in that country and they're, they're accomplished, they kind of honor you with their work. So in America, like, you know, if you were to hire a contractor to like lay cement for your driveway and you don't like his job, the American's going to run out there and say, you need to fix that. You need to get that change or I'm not going to pay you. And then if there's an argument, you, you threaten a lawsuit or something like that's the American way. Right. But there's a little more, it's a little more honorary, I think, where I was working in Japan. So we were working on this project and I really, really wanted to work with the famous illustrator, uh, Yoshitaka Amano. Anybody who's 
who knows Japanese art and stuff, he's, he's really famous. He's, he's done all the Final Fantasy work and everything. And he's done all the, the logos for the series. So as the art director, I, I said to the team, we really got to get him. We got to ask him if he will do a logo for our attraction. It will really make it authentic. But he's really famous and accomplished. So everybody's like, yeah, it's going to be hard to ask him. But the licensor said, you know, they, they would reach out to him. Well, it turns out he was really thrilled to work with us. And he said, yeah, I, 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 liked, I like doing these projects and everything. So they said, why don't you just write up a little description of what you want and, and we'll have him do it. So really quickly, he did this beautiful ink drawing. You can, you can Google the logo for our attraction. It's, it's, it's out there in public. It's, it's, it's beautiful, right? But there were a few little things we wanted to change. And so as an art director, I, I wrote up some feedback. And the translators were just like shocked that I would dare give feedback. And I said, what do you mean? And they're like, well, you, you, you know, he's honored you with his work. You can, I said, well, yeah, but I'm the art director. I, I, we need to make some changes. So they, they really did not want to translate that feedback, but they kind of grudgingly did it. And they're like, you know, this is kind of a vibe, like, you know, it's your responsibility after I send it. And then, then when the licensor got it, it was the same thing. Like, yeah, you know, we'll see if we can talk to him, but you know, we're lucky to have this. And we were extremely lucky to have it. Well, he, he never made the changes. I don't, I don't know what happened, but everybody was like really shocked that I would even ask to give that. And that was like, I think a cultural difference. And then I, I went back to Japan, like almost a year later, and I bumped into a coworker who's a translator. And I said, I said, oh, hey, it's a long time no see. And I was like trying to like explain who I was. Like, remember we were, and she's like, she's like, yeah, I remember who you are. You were the one who gave feedback to Omanasan. I was like, oh man. Man, I'm like, I'm notorious for this, but overall, like a really amazing experience. But uh, I think that might be one, I don't know if I call it a cultural difference, but it was, it was new to me. Wow, that is so interesting. One of the technologies you've gotten to work on with your time at Universal is virtual reality. So what is it like working with that technology on applications such as roller coasters? So again, it's, it's thrilling to work on the cutting edge of technology where art and technology merge it's just it's always fresh and we work with a great team that just keeps like pushing the boundaries that the last roller coaster that i worked on for attack on titan was allegedly the world's first vr roller coaster in 4k resolution allegedly i i don't i can't like actually prove it but all the top experts that in our field that we worked with all said that so i think there's some weight to that opinion <laughs> uh, it's I mean, it brings your work into a new dimension and there's new challenges with it. When, when a guest could put on a headset and literally be immersed in the world, it's exciting because it drowns out all background noise and everything. They are in the world, but it, they also have the agency to look around. So you're now competing for focus. So imagine you're doing a painting or even like you're storyboarding a scene. Well, any artist creates a focal point in, in his or her work. And you say, well, this is where I want the audience to look and, and everything. But when you're working in VR, you're, you're competing with a lot of focal points. I mean, people can just look around. You could put something in front of them, but then they have the freedom to turn their head up or down. And then on a roller coaster, it's moving. So you want them to, to look where they're going or they can get kind of motion sick. And it's really important to tell a good story with the proper focal points to keep people engaged. So it's like, a, it, it's already a challenge to create a good composition in a painting. But now imagine a painting that's moving and it's in VR and guests can look anywhere they want. It's, it's a really challenging to, to make, it, make it work, uh, but it's an exciting challenge. Whoa, so with something like wearing a headset while you're riding a roller coaster, are, 
are you actually moving or is it something where you just see that you're moving and then you have some sort of mechanism that's maybe tilting you forward and back or are they actually on like a track? Oh no, you're moving. This is the real deal. You're on a roller coaster. You're moving physically. And then the, the, the goal is to match the speed of the media with the speed of the coaster so that it mitigates motion sickness. Oh my and gosh. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's intense. It's, it's exciting. It's really like cutting edge technology. It's, I know we're at the time of recording this, we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's a travel ban in some countries, but I highly recommend you go to the park and experience a VR roller coaster. It's really the way of the future. It really is. It's, it's phenomenal. That is incredible. The one thing I think about is how do you have guests adjust their perspective view in the headset? Everyone's a little bit different. Yeah, so the technology just improves each and every time we do this. So we were using off-the-shelf headsets uh, several years ago, and you had to focus. And if people had glasses, uh, you know that that would affect the the view and everything. But we're now using a proprietary high-definition headset that auto-focuses, and it's big enough that I think small glasses can be worn by guests. So you literally just put them on. They're customized, so they're 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 pretty seamless. They're pretty lightweight as well. And you don't have to focus. You don't have to like put a smartphone in and take it out. It's just, it's, it, it just runs. It's the latest, greatest technology. That is so cool. I love Attack on Titan. And I feel like a VR roller coaster would be absolutely terrifying. It's terrifying in a good way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that is so cool. So with everything you've worked on, what is your favorite part about what you do? Well, my favorite part simply is watching the guests experience what we work so hard on. Short answer, it's watching people experience what you work on and seeing how if you do it well, you kind of change their lives in a way. And you create a memory at this moment in time where they say like, oh, I remember seeing that or I remember going on that attraction with my kid or I remember when I was dating my spouse, we, we watched your shows or whatever. It's like, it's very humbling and it's a reminder of why you do this. Like everybody, like if you're a really passionate artist and you've been doing it since you could hold a pencil or something, maybe it's kind of a calling that you can't help, but you also make a conscious decision to pursue that career and go through the ups and downs. It's not a steady career. And what makes it all worthwhile is seeing fans' reactions to Attack on Titan or American Dad or Sailor Moon or Final Fantasy or whatever you work on. You realize that you've kind of you got this little place in history, but you've also made a place in history for the fans' lives. Because now they have a memory of seeing your VR coaster or your Cinema 4D attraction or your film or your book, and it means something to them. That is what is most fulfilling about being an artist. Wow. I mean, especially with being in a creative career, I think that's an incredible perspective to have and definitely one that I think can help you push the boundaries of what you do. Definitely. So moving forward, what are your goals? Well, I want to keep, I want to keep learning new technology and I want to keep pushing those boundaries. It's, it's what keeps everything fresh. As we've been discussing over the course of my career, every time a new technology is introduced, it creates a whole new set of challenges but also excitement to keep seeing what's next how can we how can we push these boundaries i mean even with the vr coasters like it's still virtual reality but the technology and the hardware it keeps improving each time so i think pushing boundaries creatively and technologically are really up there and i, I think a long-term dream of mine is to someday have my own creator owned property 
my own creator owned IP, to be the creator or co-creator of my own animation or book or VR attraction or what it is that, that I, that I own the IP for or I'm part owner. And then eventually like creatively manage that franchise as something that I, I had a big hand in making myself. I've worked with a lot of really revered properties. They're always owned by, by a different franchise, a different company, like Disney owns it or Universal owns it or, or Kodansha or Toei. Some, somebody else owns that, the franchise and that's part of the job. So eventually I would love to create and own my own franchise. Well, you've spoken it into existence, so I hope it happens mm -hmm. for sure. <laughs> yeah, keep me honest. <laughs> so I do have a couple questions that I like to ask everybody that comes on the podcast. If you could try any profession other than your current one without having to worry about money or school or anything like that, what would it be? That's a good question. I've actually considered that before. Ooh. So I'm already super grateful and just lucky to be not just pursuing what I love, but I've had the good fortune to be able to work in different industries as we've been discussing. So I've already touched a bunch of different industries. I guess to answer your question, before I really committed to art, I had a strong drive in writing. A lot of my English teachers were disappointed that I wasn't going to be a writer. And I said, oh, well, I'm actually an artist and that's what I want to do. So maybe writing a screenplay, writing a book, something that's non-visual would force me to use a different, slightly different part of my brain. It's still right brain thinking, it's still creative, but it's not visual. And then I suppose like, which is more of a tangent, like I could see at some point in my life working as like a recruiter or sort of head headhunters type job for the business oh, because that would be a way to kind of, yeah, it would be kind of a way to give back and share all this knowledge that I have. And, and sometimes, you know, people reach out to me and, I, and I'm, I'm glad to help when I have the time. I don't have a lot of free time, but I, I try to make it for, especially when I, when I see myself in young hopefuls, I kind of want to help that person. And sometimes it's just a matter of course correcting what they have. Like, okay, well, like that one of my early mentors, like he looked at my portfolio when I was trying to get animation, but I had a lot of stuff that was not really geared toward animation. And it wasn't that I couldn't do it. It was more like I needed somebody with the clout to tell me, well, this is an entry-level position and this is what you should have in your portfolio. So sometimes it might, it might just be that nudge. And then I get to work more with the people skills that I've kind of had to grow with over the course of my, my career. I suppose I would probably lean into that if I'm not already doing what I love every day anyway. That's, maybe those are some things that I would, I would pursue. Wow, I think it would be incredible, especially with writing, to see someone like you with such a background in visual creativity, then create something that had to be visualized through words. I think it would be very fascinating to see something like that. Well, thanks. Maybe someday you'll read something like that. Yeah. So do you have any advice on how to turn your passions into a career? Yeah, actually, I do. When you ask that question, I... I... I've thought in the past, what would I tell my 21 year old self? Like you've heard that question before. So the, here, here's what I would tell my own 21 year old self and anyone else who's trying to get into the industry, regardless of your age, if you're trying to do what you love, like look at challenges as creative challenges, not as roadblocks. So like when I first moved to Los Angeles, I, I spent too much time, I think, 
in a self-imposed loop of like, well, I can't do this because I don't have that. Well, I don't have that, so I can't do this. Like, well, I can't be an animator because I don't have a team. It's like, I can't can't draw this because I can't afford a computer. And then if I can afford a computer, well, I'll need a scanner. And then I don't have the software. Those are self-imposed excuses that just, they don't exist. If you want to do something, you just, you just kind of do it. I also had another phone call around around this time in my life that was also like a cold splash of reality. A, a high school buddy of mine who was still, I'm from, I grew, I grew up in Buffalo, New York. And, and he, he called me after I'd been living in, in Los Angeles for, I don't know, maybe less than a year. And he called me up really high energy and said, Hey, like, Hey, so are you, are you working in the industry yet? And I was real disappointed. I said, no. I'm, and I was going through all these excuses and he said, well, you want to be a cartoonist, right? I said, yeah, more or less. He says, so why aren't you just making your own cartoons? And I, and I told him the same excuses that I made, like about, well, I can't have this until this. And he said, no, just if you want to do animation, do animation. If you want to make a logo, do a logo and do it. And he is now a successful entrepreneur. And he was speaking from the entrepreneurial spirit, which I didn't have in those days. And, and I look at it and I say, well, after I hung up the phone and, and all these years later, I remember that phone call of like, just get it done. Like if, if somebody showed me a portfolio and it was like drawn with like ballpoint pen, it was like on line paper on the back of a napkin, but they were like really great illustrations, visualizing a concept or a story or storyboard. And I said, yeah, your work looks great, but like, why is it on napkins and, and markers? And if that person said, look, I'm, I really want to be an artist, but I can't afford it right now. And like, this is, this is all I can do. I would be really impressed at that person's problem solving skills. And I'd want to give that person a chance. You don't have to give yourself excuses of saying, I can't do this before that. Or like my first mentor who really believed in me with the software, I said, I didn't know how to use Flash and everything. And he said, well, get the software and learn it. There's really nothing stopping you. You just have to make the decision to do it. I could have made a ton of excuses how I couldn't go to Japan, that I don't speak the language, that I'll never fit in there. It's too daunting. It's too scary. Was it scary? Of course it was scary. But I just made the decision to do it and I got on a plane. And then I lived in Japan and I had this phenomenal experience for more than a year. You just have to tell yourself, I'm going to do it. Well, Michelangelo, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come and share your story and give such excellent advice and perspective on the creative industry. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It's been a blast. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Michelangelo or his work, you can visit his website or LinkedIn listed in the show notes down below or find him on Instagram at Michelangelo underscore Rocco. Also, make sure to check out Universal Studios Japan's latest virtual reality roller coaster, Stand By Me Dorimon 2. If you guys like the show, please subscribe, leave a rating, and comment on whatever platform you listen on. It really helps out the show. For more information or to learn about future guests, you can also find us on Instagram at TheMoreCreative or on YouTube at MoreCreative. Again, thanks for listening and I hope to see you next time.